Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I am one of the pastors here at Zion. Um, if you're visiting with us, welcome. And I've got a big ask for you. After the service, I would love to meet you. Just to say, hey, thanks for being here. So after the service, find me. I'll, I'll be looking for you. And I'd, I'd just love to say, hey, and, and again, thank you for, for being here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Um, if you ha- would like to use a pew Bible, you can find that passage on page 1019. That's how they say it in England. They don't say 1019. I've just been listening to preachers in England. Or we have that, pa- we have that passage printed in your bulletin on page 10. This morning, we are, uh, we are remembering the third Sunday of Advent. Most Christians tend to think of Advent as a season where we prepare for Christmas. It's the time of year when we look back to the birth of Jesus and we try to imagine what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph as they awaited the arrival of their promised son. But as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, historically speaking, Advent did not begin as a season of preparation for the first Advent. It actually began as a season in preparation for the second Advent, for Jesus' return. And as such, it was a season of waiting. It was a season of longing. It was a season of yearning. It was a season of groaning. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the early church was painfully aware of the fact that they lived in a gap. They lived in a gap between the promises of God and the fulfillment of God's promises. They lived in what theologians call the already not yet. They lived in the period of time between the first advent, the first coming of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, where he inaugurated his kingdom and his return, the second advent. Sometime in the future, when when Jesus will come and he will judge the living and the dead and he will make all things new and he will consummate the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. That's exactly where we live. We too live in the already not yet. We live between the mountain peak of Christ's first coming and the glorious mountain peak of Christ's return. And our experience of that place in redemptive history comes with yearning, comes with longing, comes with groaning. We've got God's promises, and yet we await the fulfillment of God's promises. And oftentimes, living where we live in our day, in our time, brings with it questions, what I've described as Advent questions. What is an Advent question? Well, here's the one we're thinking about this morning. Four times, four times in the book of Revelation, the resurrected Christ is quoted as saying, I am coming soon. The Advent question, 
Jesus, what's taking you so long? Beloved, the good news of the gospel and the good news for us today is that we aren't the first to ask that question. In fact, the Bible asks that question both in the Old Testament and the New Testament over and over. And it's the question Peter is addressing this morning in our text. So would you read with me 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up to sincere mind. I'm I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. In a thousand years as one day, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some counted slowness, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godness, waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, there's my opinion, and then there's your opinion. And then there's the word of God, and what we have just read is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us this morning. So pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit. If we're honest, I would bet that we wonder What's taking you so long? We pray that you would teach us this morning, that you would give us ears to hear your answer, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted of sin and where you would comfort us with the grace of your gospel. We pray all this now in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, let me begin by giving you a little context to this passage. Peter is writing this letter to a network of churches in what is today Turkey. And from earlier in the letter, we learned that Peter knows that he is going to die and die soon. So this letter is his final words. It is his parting address to the beloved of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And as such, they are pregnant with import. Why is Peter writing this letter? Well, it's because there is a growing number of corrupt teachers who are infiltrating the church, leading Christians astray through their distorted theology and their twisted way of life. What is Peter's goal? Well, verses 1 and 2. It's to remind these church communities of what the holy prophets of old predicted and what Jesus himself commanded through the apostles so that they might live lives of holiness and godliness as they wait for the coming day of God, for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. What are these corrupt teachers teaching? Well, look at verse 4. Peter writes, these scoffers will say, where is the promise of this coming? That is, where is the coming of Jesus? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What are these guys teaching? They're, they're teaching, well, they're denying the second coming of Christ. They're, they're denying that Jesus will ever return. They are saying, since the beginning of time, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. Since the beginning of time, there is winter, which is followed by spring, which is followed by summer, which is followed by fall, which is followed by winter, which is followed by spring, which is followed by summer over and over and over again. They're saying nothing ever changes. Nothing has ever changed and nothing ever will change. But more than that, these teachers are at best proto-deists. What do I mean? They believe that while God created the heavens and the earth, ever since his creation, he's been pretty much hands-off. And their logic if nothing ever changes, and if God is hands-off, we don't need to worry about him coming again. How, how does what these folks believe impact the way they live their lives? Well, this denial of the coming day of the Lord conveniently allows them to ignore Jesus' teaching about money and about sex and to follow their own simple desires, shamelessly sleeping around and taking advantage and cashing in on the church's generosity to them. And here's the kicker. Peter is deeply, deeply concerned that the believers to whom he is writing this letter are beginning to buy what these false teachers are selling. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, but, but, false prophets are also, uh, but false prophets also arose among the people, 
just as there will be false teachers among you. Verse 3, and their greed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Verse 13, chapter 2, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, deceptions while they feast with you. Peter is deeply concerned that some of his readers are beginning to drift away from the truth that they've been taught. So how does Peter respond? The first thing Peter does is remind his readers that from the very beginning of time, God has been deeply and intimately involved in the nitty-gritty of life. He begins at creation, verse 5. He's saying, he says that God created the world by the word of his power, but he doesn't stop with creation. He reminds his readers that God also judged. Verse 6, God judged the world in Noah's day. And then, of course, Peter doesn't explicitly mention this, but it's assumed in verse 2 when he mentions the commandments of the Lord and Savior. He is reminding his readers that God himself took on flesh and entered into our world, that he entered into, personally entered into the nitty-gritty of life in our world, in Jesus Christ. He lived, and he died, and he rose again. Why? Why was Jesus crucified? Why did Jesus die? Was we ourselves were reminded just a moment ago. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds. We are healed. In other words, on the cross, Jesus himself was judged. God created the world. God judged the world in the day of Noah. God judged Jesus so that you and I who look to him in faith won't be judged. What does this mean? What does this mean for you and for me? Beloved, it means don't let anybody tell you that God doesn't really care about how you live your life or that sin doesn't really matter. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Sin matters so much to God that Christ was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquity. If you think sin is no big deal, I would beg you, look at the cross. If Jesus took sin so seriously that he was willing to die, how can we take sin lightly? We can't. But Peter's concern is that his readers, which include us, might. And he's saying that the only thing that awaits people who follow their own sinful desires is judgment and destruction. How's that for an Advent message? <laughs> Sorry. I think it's kind of crazy. Now... I know that for at least some of you, or at least for some people, maybe none in here, but maybe you know people 
who, who think the idea that God is going to return and he is going to bring judgment and destruction is an absolutely horrific thought. I mean, who needs a God like that? I would suggest to you, you do. What happens if somebody intentionally harms your child? You want justice. What happens if somebody unjustly takes something that belongs to you? You want justice. What happens if someone slanders your name? You want justice. Beloved, we want justice. The fact of the matter is we can't live without justice. Here's the thing. We just don't want justice for ourselves. I want justice for other people. I just don't want justice for me. But God doesn't play favorites. One last thing. God's justice isn't a necessary evil. It's actually a necessary good because its result, we see it in verse 13, is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the first thing Peter does is he reminds his readers and he reminds us that God has been deeply and intimately involved in the day-to-day -day life, even judging the world in the time of Noah and judging Jesus as he died on a cross. But there's a second thing that Peter does. Peter also reminds us that our perception of time is not the same as God's perception of time. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You may or may not know this, but, but Peter is alluding to something that Moses wrote centuries earlier. In Psalm 90, verse 4, Moses writes this. He says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Now, what are both Moses and Peter saying? They're saying that God does not experience time in the same way you and I experience time. God is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 1. We are like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. Psalm 90 verse 5. God is the inventor of time. He is outside of time. He's above time. And we are little more than a blip in time to him. Their point is obvious, isn't it? Jesus' understanding of soon is different than our understanding of soon. We're we are like children in the backseat of a car when mom and dad takes them on a trip to see their grandparents. What do your parents, what do your kids always say to you when you get in the car to head off to see the grandparents, especially if the grandparents live out of state? Do what? How much longer? Are we there yet? That's us. 
what I'm trying to say is that God's relationship to time transcends our relationship to time. And when we lose sight of that truth, it is tempting to conclude that God should be doing things faster than he's doing them. And you see, what this passage does is it calls us to humility. It calls us to humble ourselves and to embrace the words of Isaiah 55 that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But Peter is not just calling his readers to humility. He is also calling them to hope. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What Peter is saying is that what appears to be slowness isn't slowness after all. It's patience. God's apparent slowness is not because he doesn't care. God's apparent slowness is actually because God deeply cares. What seems like a delay is in fact God's gracious, loving patience, allowing time for people to repent before his coming. As Peter tells us in verse 9, the Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, we've got to pause here for a second, because people have understood this verse in various ways over the centuries. Some have concluded that Peter's words, some have concluded from Peter's words that since God does not wish any should perish, all are saved. And they conclude that this passage teaches universalism. There's just one problem. Verse 6. What is verse 6 about? It's about the judgment in the days of Noah. So this this passage can't possibly be teaching us universal salvation. Well, what's another way of thinking about this passage? Other believers believe that what Peter is teaching here is that on the cross, Jesus accomplished the possibility of salvation for anyone and for everyone. That, but, that it's, that all, but that's all he accomplished. He only accomplished the possibility. He didn't actually save anybody because he doesn't wish any to perish. He wrote the check. But at the end of the day, each person has to decide whether or not to cash the check. But here's the problem with that. The Bible never talks about Jesus' work on the cross as his making salvation possible. But as him actually accomplishing salvation. Revelation 5, 9, the elders on their face before the throne of God saying, you were slain and your blood ransomed people of God. Hebrews 9, 12, by his blood, Jesus secured an eternal redemption. Titus 2, 14, (coughs) Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught that Jesus came to make salvation possible. 
We are taught everywhere that he came to accomplish salvation. And that's such good news. Because our hope is not in us. It's not in our decision, but it's in him. It's in his work. Now, I do need to say one thing to sort of nuance this. I'm in no way denying the necessity of faith. <coughs> but faith is not the foundation of our salvation. It is actually the fruit of our salvation. It is the evidence that God has saved us. As the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now I know that this issue is far more complex than what I've suggested and if there's something you'd like to talk about, I'd love to get together with you after this service sometime this next week and, and talk through this kind of stuff with you. Look at scriptures together. Of course, there's a third way to understand what Peter is saying here. Who are the any and all that Peter is talking about in verse 9? Well, how does verse 9 begin? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward who? Toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The any and the all at the end of verse 9 is preceded and it is governed by the statement, the Lord is patient toward you. In other words, it is God's patience towards the believers to whom Peter is writing that Peter is focusing on. Peter is telling these believers who are being lured by these false teachers and led into a sinful way of life that they need to repent. Peter is saying to his readers and he is saying to us, God is patient with you, wanting every one of you to repent before the end comes. This really shouldn't surprise us. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, says this about believers. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. Of course, this again begs the question, how do you view your sin? How do you think about your sin? How do you deal with your sin? The good news of the gospel is that Peter doesn't say the Lord is not, is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should get their spiritual ducks in a row or that all should clean themselves up, or that all should redouble their efforts to live as God prescribes. No. He calls us to repentance, to turn from our sin and turn toward 
Christ, who he is, and what he has, is, and will do for us and in us. Beloved, this is the love and grace of God for sinners like you and me. That for our sakes, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This passage is so rich and it raises so many questions. Again, if you'd like to talk about anything in this passage that raises questions for you, I'd love the opportunity to sit down with you and listen. But we have to land the plane. We have to ask the so what question. Why does this matter? So what? In her book, Letters to the Church, Karen Jobes writes, deciding how we live today depends more than we realize on what we believe about the future. Example, if you're a young person, if a young person believes that there's no way that he or she will ever get into college, that person is less likely to invest themselves in their studies as a high school student. In other words, what you think about the future matters for how you live today. Another example is, is a, a mother, an expecting mother. An expecting mother prepares herself for the birth of her child. She gets her husband to paint the nursery, right? They go out and they buy onesies. What you think of the future, diapers, oh yeah, diapers. It's been a while. Um, golly, man, it's crazy. That's, wow, amazing. But, but, but what you think of the future actually dictates, it, it shapes how you live your life today. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter is tying his exhortation to live lives of holiness and godliness directly to the coming day of the Lord. When the heavens and the earth pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed when the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What, what is Peter saying? First of all, it's important to say that this is not the only passage that talks about the return of Christ, but Peter's got a very specific focus here. Like many people today, the false teachers of his day were focusing exclusively on the here and the now. They lived and they taught people to live like today is all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Don't store up treasures in heaven. Spend them today. You only go around once. Go for the gusto, carpe diem. And what Peter is saying is all of that's going to burn. All of that is going to pass away. All of that is going to be dissolved. 
And if that's not how we're supposed to live, how should we live? Peter tells us, verse 11 and 12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? When I first read those verses, I thought that Peter was asking a question. What kind of people should we be? But I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think he's actually making a declaration that we are to be people who live our lives in holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming day of God. What Peter is telling us is that our expectation of the Lord's return should be an incentive to holy living. Holy living has been Peter's concern throughout this letter. He begins his letter, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And what he's saying in our passage is that if we truly believe that God will one day bring judgment on the wicked and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, then our lives should character, be characterized by a wholehearted devotion that orients the entirety of our lives toward God and his purpose in the world. This is the logic, this is the same logic that John uses in his first letter. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the same logic that Paul uses in the second chapter of Titus. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The last thing I need to say is this. Peter is not trying to scare anybody into godliness and holiness by preaching hellfire and brimstone. No. What Peter is doing in this passage is he is wooing us. He's wooing us. How can I say that? We'll look at verse 10. Verse 10. What are we awaiting the day of the Lord. Look at verse 13. What are we awaiting? Peter writes, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Earlier, I quoted from 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you know how John describes Jesus at the very beginning of chapter 2? He writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you hear what Peter is saying? Do you hear what John is saying? It is not just that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sin. There will be no sin. But that's not all. It's not just in the new heavens and the new earth that there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. It's not just that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no death. All those things are true. They're just not all. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, we will come face to face with Jesus, the righteous. Jesus, our righteousness. He will be there. And at this very moment in time, he too stands waiting patiently like a bridegroom standing at an altar on his wedding day, waiting for the doors of the church to swing wide and for his bride to appear. Beloved, that bride is you. What does a bride do as she awaits her wedding day? Among other things, she picks out her wedding dress. Beloved, holiness and godliness are the garments. They are the, the wedding dress with which the bride is being fitted as she prepares herself and awaits an eternity with Christ. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, holiness and godliness are the things which no fire can touch. For holiness and godliness will outlive even the flames of the last great day. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, these words are, are hard and kind of confusing. They, they talk about things that we don't typically want to talk about. And yet they remind us of your goodness, your grace, your kindness, your patience, your love for us. That you patiently wait that we might repent of our sins. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, I pray that you would, you would convict us of our sins, that we might confess them to you, that we might repent from them and run into your arms where we will find a loving, faithful, kind, generous, forgiving Father, Son, and Spirit who will receive us like a groom receives his bride at the altar. Lord, would you take these, 
these elements, these, this bread and this wine, and would you use it not only to point us back to what you've done for us in Jesus, but that you would point us forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Lord, I pray that we would live our lives today, tomorrow, and the next day until you return in light of the fact that you will return as our king, as our savior, as the creator of the universe, and as our groom. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.